MSW Media. I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broken? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail! Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 34 of Jack, the podcast about all things special counsel. We've been doing this 34 weeks now. It is Sunday, July 23rd. Uh, I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. Allison, we may (laughs) have a a few news stories uh, this week in the special counsel investigations, plural. So first, Trump has been sent a target letter for the January 6th investigation. So just let that sit in for a second. Uh, In addition, we have more witnesses uh, appearing in front of the grand jury, Trump allies, including uh, none other than Will Russell. And we have some, what I would call, I guess, indications or maybe a willingness to cooperate from former Arizona Governor Doug Ducey and a subpoena from the special counsel team for the State Farm Arena video footage. That's got to be huge. And continued scrutiny of the Willard War Room. Yeah. And every week we wonder, like, what could possibly be next? Totally. I mean, we're, we're, we're on, f- I think we're a full on on indictment watch now mm-hmm. uh, with the reception of that uh, target letter for the coup. Uh, and we also have Bernie Carrick in talks with special counsel, but that's according to his lawyer, who is Parlatore, so great uh, Yeah, <laughs> shaker of salt, uh, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> but full that tube of Morton's that's um, right. of salt. And uh, we just heard today, Judge Aileen Cannon has set a trial date for the documents case, the Mar-a-Lago documents case. She has set that for May 2024, handing another loss to Donald, who wanted this to take place after the election. And it still might. We need to be clear on that. Uh, And he also recently failed to get the Manhattan hush money case moved out of the Manhattan district attorney's, you know, state court and into federal court. He failed. And he also lost his bid to retry the E. Jean Carroll case, the one where he ended up um, they determined he was a rapist and had to pay $5 million. Uh, and that was, by the way, the language that the judge used when denying him the ability to, to redo the whole trial. Um, she's like, look, it is by definition rape. So there you go. You know, it is what it is. You know, tough week for, for the Trump legal team. There's no, no <laughs> doubt about that. They looked good, I thought, uh, on Tuesday when they had the arguments in front of Judge Cannon and I know we're going to talk more about that later, but man, things things took a, a nosedive for them as we uh, finished out the week. But um, mm-hmm. anyway, so should we move on to uh, round one, which is, of course, the target letter? Yeah, I thought that was probably the breaking news of the week. Um, I thought it was very pointed that we had one of the authors of the model prosecution memo on last week who really wanted to get that model prosecution memo out uh, and then... Lo and behold, 48 hours or so later, but actually the target letter went out that Sunday, the same day that our episode aired. That's right. Norm Eisen sliding across the finish line there with <laughs> yes. incredible timing. I mean, that safe. Was yeah. <laughs> very nice. Nicely done. And uh, I want to talk a little bit 
about, I think Rolling Stone was the first to break kind of what was in the target letter. ABC confirmed, CNN confirmed, NBC confirmed, and then, oops, they all got it wrong. <laughs> and <laughs> and I'm sitting there like, 242? Okay, I mean, I'll write an analysis on this, but that doesn't seem to fit. And I'm talking about Title 18, U.S. Code 242, uh, deprivation of the civil rights under the color of law. And it didn't really seem to quite fit based on what we spoke to Norm Eisen uh, about. But uh, let's let's talk real quick about, first of all, the other two things that they, they got 371. Well, they didn't give us numbers. I wish if they would just give us the numbers instead of uh, a broadly worded definition like conspiracy to defraud the United States. But we know that to be 371. Of course. Yep. We were expecting that. That's one of the two chart, one of the two crimes Judge Carter found more than likely, more likely than not occurred uh, with Donald Trump and John Eastman and uh, and used that to pierce attorney-client privilege with the crime fraud exception when the January 6th committee was trying to get Eastman's emails. So we've been familiar with 371, right? Yeah, it's been been used many times before. Typically in, in federal practice, you see it used against people who commit some sort of fraud, like stealing government funds, right? If you committed like Medicare fraud or Medicaid fraud, or or let's say you were accused of... of uh, of receiving, you know, you remember the the covert the COVID money that was coming out to help right. businesses keep their employees. If you filed a fraudulent uh, request for those funds and received it, you could be charged with uh, three seventy one. Of course, you need a co conspirator. So it's generally used in that way. Um, I think it fits quite nicely with what we expect the factual allegations to be in the January sixth case. So three seventy one, um, not a surprise. That was right down the middle. And then they said, Rolling Stone uh, said, witness tampering. And I immediately came out and said, this is what they said when they had the documents. Rolling Stone was the first to find out what was in the documents uh, charges before we got, before we saw the indictments. They also called it witness tampering. But it was actually, 1512 is broadly the witness tampering statute, right? That's correct. But in, yeah, that's, in the documents that's actually case, the title of the statute, <laughs> witness tampering. So I can't throw a rock at them for, for saying that, but our listeners know better because we've been talking about this for months. <laughs> Years, you know, since Liz Cheney started uttering the words way back in, in 2021, as that's a right. matter of fact. But, uh, uh, you know, with the documents case, it wasn't witness tampering. Well, it was 1512K, 1512AB2, and 15C1, um, 1512C1. Now, what we know the witness tampering to be in this case, I'm I'm, I'm almost 100% certain is 1512C2, obstructing an official proceeding. Um, we've been talking, it's what they've charged most of the January 6th on the ground rioters with. That kind of helps with the conspiracy right. charge to to put those two, two and two together. So 1512C2, 371, that's also the second statute Judge Carter said was more likely than not committed by Trump and Eastman to pierce attorney-client privilege with crime fraud. So... We have those two. Not a surprise. Then we we're expecting, you know, because we had just talked to Norm Eisen, right? Well, you know, Andy, I got to be honest with you. I thought it was just going to be 371 and 1512 C2 until Garland hit the Oath Keepers with seditious conspiracy mm-hmm. charges, got the convictions, until Garland came in and wanted to file a notice for appeal to uh, of the Oath Keeper sentences because they were too short. 
Uh, Garland came in and withdrew the certification or representation of Donald Trump in the Eugene Carroll case. Like, I'm like, all right, kind of a baller. Yeah. Maybe he'll go with what Norm Eisen had recommended in the model prosecution memo, which was 2383 inciting an insurrection. But we, but we didn't see that. Instead, we saw 241, which is uh, Title 18 U.S. Code 241. Yeah. So, and that's what, that was the one that kind of threw me the curveball as well. You and I were texting uh, over the news and I was like, geez, I can't. Because of course they mistakenly reported it initially as 242, which is essentially the denial of constitutional rights under the color of law. That's the go-to statute that you use in any federal civil rights investigation of uh, uh, excessive use of force by the police. So it's uh, that under color of law requires that you were in some position with legal authority and you essentially exceeded that legal authority in an effort to deprive someone of their constitutional rights. So that just did not uh, seem right. right I like mean, it's used in Breonna Taylor case, the George right. Floyd case. Um, and so then, yeah, Maggie Haberman, and then right following up very quickly was Hugo Lowell from The Guardian, yep. reported that it's actually 241. Right. And the concept is some, I mean, the way that we were trying to apply 242 to what happened on January 6th, that 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 application is still the same with 241 correct correct yeah but now it's it's almost like we were trying like it's almost like i was trying to bend it into fitting 242 and then somebody's like oh no it's 241 i'm like oh well this sounds like exactly what <laughs> what i was thinking it should be yeah it's essentially you've you've removed that element of under color of law and it's yeah. it's a it's a basic uh, conspiracy. So again, two at least two people have to have an agreement and commit an act in furtherance. That's a conspiracy. Yeah, I have the verbiage right here. Actually, if you want to, let's go through that. Yeah, they, the first part: if two or more persons, as you said, Andrew, conspire to injure, oppress, threaten, or intimidate any person in any state, territory, commonwealth, possession, or district, or the free exercise of enjoyment of any right or privilege secured to him by the Constitution, basically. Two or more persons conspire to injure any person uh, in the free exercise of an enjoyment of a right or privilege that is secured to that person under the Constitution or the laws of the United States, or because having so exercised the same, right? The second part made me laugh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm not so sure they're going to use this part, but... If two or more persons go in disguise on the highway. (laughs) (laughs) Disguised as what? I wonder. Okay, let's put that aside for a minute. It's really specific. (laughs) One of them is wearing a a sheet as a ghost costume, or maybe not. I don't know. Uh, We would have gotten away with this conspiracy (laughs) if it weren't for those meddling kids. Uh, Anyway, they shall be fined under this title or in prison, not more than 10 years. So this is a max 10-year felony or both. But if death results from the acts committed in violation of this section, or if such acts include kidnapping or an attempt to kidnap, aggravated sexual abuse or an attempt to commit aggravated sexual abuse, or an attempt to kill, they shall be fined under this title or imprisoned for any term of years to life, or both, and may be sentenced to death. So Yeah. So it's, I think, helpful to know, like, historically, both of these statutes uh, date back to the post-Civil War period when the government was realizing they needed to do something to protect the rights of, of black people in this country who were being oppressed, who were being kidnapped, who were being assaulted. 
uh, in an effort to deny them the exercise of their newly granted constitutional rights. And, and so that's where they come from. And that's why the second statute, 242, is really directed at police involved in that, uh, in that conduct. However, the courts since about the 1950s have recognized the use of these statutes in the voting context, right? Using, using these statutes to essentially go after politicians or others who uh, are acting to deny people access to the to the uh, to the right to vote, or just some aspect of of invalidating their franchise. Yeah, and early early on um, in 2020 2021, uh, folks like Joyce Vance and Andrew Weissman were saying 241 would probably fit here pretty well. There was a Slate article written in 2020 uh, about using potentially 241, and then we just all sort of collectively forgot <laughs> forgot about it you know i mean i don't want to i don't want to speak for anybody else but um and now it's it's come back up and so uh, some it's it's also been used very recently we have a very recent example of a successful 241 charge that was Doug Mackey remember Ricky Vaughn that's right uh that's the aka for Doug Mackey he was convicted just a couple months ago March 31st by a federal jury in Brooklyn for this conspiracy against rights, which is what the name of the statute is, 241. Mm -hmm. And this came from his scheme to deprive individuals of their constitutional right to vote. Now, the verdict uh, followed a one-week trial before the United States District Judge, Ann Donnelly, and when sentenced, he faced a maximum of 10 years, which is what we said in the, in the, in the, in the statute. And uh, th this is what the, this is from the Department of Justice, as proven at trial between September 2016 and November 2016, Mackey conspired with other influential Twitter users and with members of private online groups to use social media, including Twitter, to disseminate fraudulent messages that encourage supporters of presidential candidate Hillary Clinton to vote via text message or on social media, which in reality was legally invalid. So he was charged and convicted of this uh, of this particular crime for basically uh, interfering with people's right to cast their votes. Now, how does that apply and to what part, you know, how we were talking about the multiple prongs of the attempted, you know, interference of the peaceful transfer of power. Is it, is this more of a fraudulent electors, uh, type thing where the, where the 241 would apply in that by conspiring to have people sign fraudulent elector certificates that would somehow inter impede with the a person's right to vote in those swing states? Or is it something else? I'm, like, where would you, how would this specifically apply to what, to all the different things we saw Donald Trump doing? The interesting thing about, about this statute is you could really use many different facts that we are all very aware of now that took place over the timeline here uh, leading up to January 6th, on January 6th, that sort of thing. Um, you could use all those different facts as proof of this one charge, right? So it's not dependent on, you know, unlike wire fraud for, you know, you need like the specific facts to prove each element of scheme to defraud, use of the, you know, use of uh, wire transmission, what have you. This is a little bit different. You could, you could... Uh, go forward, and we'll see how prosecutors end up doing this. I think the indictment, when it finally arrives, will be very specific in this regard. But there's a lot of things that add 
to this general idea that Trump was involved in a scheme to uh, inter- interfere with people's right to vote and right to have their votes tallied and counted and applied in a free and fair way. So the, I think the fraudulent elector schemes fits into that theory very well, and it's a good tangible thing that you can kind of will have p- direct pieces of evidence about. You'll have numerous um, participants testifying about their role in those proceedings. We know that from the folks that have uh, indicated they're cooperating recently. So that all works. But even things like the pressure on Mike Pence kind of fits in here, right? If Trump mm-hmm. is is pressuring Pence to exceed his authority and to basically delay or refuse to certify the election, that also fits this general theory of you, Trump, attempted in many different ways to essentially invalidate the votes of the American public, those people, uh, those voters who voted for Joe Biden. So it's it's really kind of a catch-all that I think a lot of this evidence could fall into. Yeah, and I also heard a former Department of Justice official describe it uh, to, I think it was Lawrence, Lawrence O'Donnell, who said, you know, it could also be interfering with our right to a peaceful, peaceful transfer of power uh, uh, as protected under the Constitution. Could also be uh, interfering with Joe Biden's right to ascend to the presidency. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a lot of different ways that I think this could be interpreted, which could which could attach itself to the insurrection, could attach itself to the Pence pressure, could attach itself to fraudulent electors. Yeah. All kinds of uh, all kinds of ways that this could attach. It'll be interesting to see if it is, if the two forty one charge is in the indictment, how it's applied, uh, and what what the scheme is. I'm really yeah. interested to see that. It's also very consistent with the 371 charge, right? The basic, mm-hmm. you committed, you attempted to defraud the United States government of its free and fair election results. It's all the same proof. Yeah. And so for mm-hmm. prosecutors, you're basically telling one coherent story. And then at the end, in the jury instruction phase, you are showing them how these two statutes fit in here like pieces of a puzzle. So mm-hmm. it's it's... I think it's kind of, uh, it's a, a clearly a well thought out strategy. Now, we should probably talk a little bit, maybe back up a little bit and talk about the the target letter generally. And I'll, I'll get back around to what leads me to this point. So he, so we know that on Tuesday, Trump tweets out or Truth Social, whatever you even call that, I don't know. He posts, I guess, that he'd received the target letter on Sunday night and the letter gave him uh, supposedly until Thursday uh, to show up and testify in the grand jury if he wanted to do so. And now we also know that the that the letter included that he was being investigated for these potential violations of these three statutes. So important to know that um, target letters are not always used. You don't have to send them to the target of a grand jury investigation. There's no requirement on prosecutors to use them. Uh, in my cases, very rarely ever use them. Organized crime cases, terrorism cases, you're usually trying to go use the grand jury investigation in a kind of quiet way that the target doesn't know about, so you don't usually use a target letter. Um, They can be used early in the case to put the pressure on a target to try to convince them to come in and cooperate. Most commonly, they're used at the very end for this purpose, to let the target know if you want to come in, and you don't have to, but if you want to come in and explain yourself to the grand jury you know, now's the time. That being said, there's no hard and fast timing 
around them. You don't have to indict the case right after the target letter comes out. I think in the documents case, he got one, and then three weeks later, he was indicted. Um, you could continue to use the grand jury after the target letter has gone out for any indefinite period of time, and we'll have more reporting on what may be happening in this case uh, on that grounds later. So I, I think that um, there's there's a couple of interesting things here. Um, the one of them is I think we're definitely on indictment watch, but we don't really know exactly when that's going to be. This could go on. We could be in this phase, you mm -hmm. know, for the next several weeks. Also, interestingly, these charges, which, which or statutes, I should say, they're not charges yet. Um, at least two of them, right, if I'm counting correctly, uh, require a conspiracy. Um, mm -hmm. And so you have to have a co-conspirator. But notably, no one else has received a target letter, according to the reporting, <laughs> and a lot of people have been asked and come out and said definitively that they absolutely have not. So could Trump be charged singularly in this case and charged with a unindicted co-conspirator? I guess that's legally possible, but highly unlikely in a case like this. I doubt like it, this, unless yeah. everyone's cooperating. Like everybody's cooperating, yeah. and and even then, still, you you, I think there you're going to see at least another one. Yeah, I know Norm Eisen was like maybe three to five, depending on how much Rudy and uh, Mark Meadows are cooperating. But it's also, uh, you know, somebody had mentioned to me, um, and I think I discussed this with you actually, that sometimes they don't send target letters to the lieutenants, so that the, all the lieutenants think that the other one, the other lieutenants are cooperating. And then that sort of maybe entices them to, to cooperate against their, uh, you know, oh, well, he didn't get a target letter. Maybe yeah. he's cooperating. I better go in and, you know, that whole kind of sort of turning everybody against each other situation. Or it yeah. could also be, like you said, they don't have to send target letters to people all the time and they just might not be sending them to, to, to the to the co-conspirators. Yeah. Who knows? Or they could still be making decisions, like you said. Like, you got a couple of guys here who all of whom seem like they might be very strong co-conspirators or very strong cooperators, and they may be still making decisions about like who's in what column. Um, yep. So we'll have to just kind of watch that uh, over the next few weeks and see what happens. Yeah. And it's also worth noting that the statutes that are listed in a target letter are not an exhaustive list That's of the right. statutes that could be charged. So there could still be an insurrection uh, charge there. But there, there might not be. There could still be, you know, and these, we might not see a 241. We might only see the three... You know, these are just considerations, right? And and it's definitely not an exhaustive list. But uh, I will say that from my understanding and all the experts I've talked to, if you get a target letter nine nine hundred ninety nine times out of a thousand, you're gonna it's gonna be followed up with an indictment. Oh, absolutely. Even DOJ defines it like they say that if you receive a target letter, they you are what they call a putative defendant, meaning you haven't been charged yet, so technically you're not a defendant. But mm. prosecutors have significant evidence of your guilt, and they are already thinking of you as a defendant. They just have to get the ink dry on the indictment and have the grand jury vote on it. So you get one of these letters, unless you come in at the last second and work some sort of magical cooperation deal, which sometimes happens, won't happen here, but sometimes happens, you're, you're getting indicted. There's no question. Mm -hmm. All right. We have a lot more news to cover, uh, including some more things going on with the January 6th investigation. Uh, the special counsel's office is underway. And, you know, like like you said, we're, we're getting toward the end, but there's still some activity. We're going to talk about that, but we have to take a quick break. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. 
Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry... We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Welcome back. Okay, let's talk about what happened in the courthouse on Thursday. Holy cow, this was crazy Ooh, to follow. Boy, <laughs> as 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 our friend Asha Rangappa would say, whoo boy. <laughs> All right, so we'll, we'll start out with Trump aide William, uh, a.k.a. Will Russell, was testifying to the federal grand jury investigating January 6th. Are we 100% sure that that's the grand jury he was testifying to? Because I've been hearing in the reporting they're not 100% sure whether he was talking about document stuff or January 6th stuff. But either way, he's in the federal courthouse in D.C., in front of the grand jury. Now, just to uh, to keep the names and but faces it was, straight. it was Wyndham in the room. yeah. And since Wyndham is the guy who's the lead prosecutor for the January 6th stuff, that's kind of, I think, why I'm assuming it was the January 6th. I think uh, that's I feel a like, fair assumption. I think that's a fair I assumption. I feel like if it was documents, it would have been Brat or... Yeah. Uh, and it also seems likely, like that seems to be where the lion's share of the action is happening right now. And, and just to remind people, Will Russell, of course, was a... Uh, I guess a senior aide in the White House. He was, uh, he was like the deputy of the advance team for a while, basically a body man for Trump. 
um, and has the distinction of having been around with Trump all day on January 6th. So he's an interesting guy. He's testified in front of the grand jury before back in uh, September. And I think he also testified to the January 6th committee, if I have that right. Um, But in any case, Will Russell is in there back in the witness chair in front of the grand jury on Thursday. And what happens after that, Allison? Well, his lawyer, Will Russell's lawyer, is none other than Stanley Woodward. Of course it is. The Trump mafia consigliere. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And he was in the building, uh, you know, because his client, Will Russell, was testifying to the federal grand jury and because his other client... Another one, one of his many clients, former Trump State Department appointee and January 6th rioter Federico Klein, uh, was getting his verdict in his bench trial from from Trump-appointed Judge Trevor McFadden. Trevor McFadden sits at Prettyman, the courthouse in D.C., the federal grand jury, the chief judge Boesberg, they're all there. It's like the the nerve center of everything that's happening. All the January 6th cases, absolutely. So here's Stanley Woodward spends a lot of time there. Uh, so he's there because he's got two clients. Again, Trevor McFadden is reading a verdict on his client, Frederico Klein, and his other client is testified to the grand jury, Will Russell, in the January 6th case, uh, we, we assume. Now, because of the grand jury testimony with Will Russell, Stanley Woodward, the lawyer, was late to McFadden's reading of the verdict for his client, Klein. Right. Now that made Trevor very mad. And he asked Woodward, Stanley Woodward, the lawyer, why he was late. And Woodward said, I don't think I can talk about it because it was, you know, it was in the grand jury. It's grand jury stuff. It's grand jury secrecy. You don't, you're not, you're not cleared for that information, judge. I'm sure that went over real well. Well, McFadden then waived the grand jury secrecy. I don't know that he can do that. And he, you know, he even made a little joke, uh, you know, you being late to my verdict, talk about obstructing an official proceeding. He even, he even <laughs> made that joke. Oh, no. Oh, my God. So, mm-hmm. so then Woodward told him, well, okay, well, if you're waiving grand jury secrecy, he told him in open court in front of reporters that his client, Will Russell, was testifying to the grand jury about matters that pertain to executive privilege. Now, that could be why we've seen high-level prosecutors going in and out of Prettyman this week. Maybe they're fighting a privilege battle on a second or third round of testimony with this guy, Will Russell, or they've gotten additional information from other witnesses and need to bring him back in to button up end of his testimony, which is a lot like what happened with Taylor Budowich down in the documents case in Miami, testifying the day before they voted on a true bill, also represented by Stanley Woodward. (laughs) Also explains why uh, Wyndham is there. Right. I mean, he's not going to be and he's not in every grand jury examination. This is a witness they've been in front of before. There's something important going on there. The privilege battle, I think, maybe explains that entirely. But also the fact that they brought this guy back. Clearly, there's something they want from him that they didn't get the first time. And they believe the second time. Yeah, or the second time. And they believe it's important enough to drag him, drag him back in and, and fight it out. So I think that's how we see Wyndham there. Yeah, so there there might have been some privilege uh, litigated right during you know during that day on that day mm-hmm. Thursday, um, and you know there were some uh, things filed in the docket under seal, but there's a lot of that happening right now. So it's you know you can't really pair 
a sealed filing with something that you think should, you know, is going on that might be a sealed filing. But it stands to reason that if there's a privilege battle, it might have been litigated, an order might have been filed under seal. Uh, and I imagine, uh, like 100% of the other privilege battles, that this would have been lost by anybody who was trying to fight it. Yeah, there's no reason to expect uh, anyone to pull that off at this point. It's been, uh, that's a dead horse thoroughly beaten. Yeah, no. And then if he pleads the fifth, then you probably get them saying he can't plead the fifth because we're not trying to incriminate him. And then right. they, they say, go give him an immunity then. And they're like, oh, fine. You know, probably could that whole thing could have gone get down. We don't know. Um, but it was interrupted here by Judge Trevor McFadden because McFadden then sent a clerk, a court clerk, to fetch Wyndham and the other special counsel prosecutor out of the grand jury room, made them sit in the front row of his courtroom while he read his verdict and then finally had a bench conference, you know, come up to my approach the bench, right, with Woodward and, and the Jack Smith prosecutors. And that's when they, I, Ryan Riley was reporting on this NBC, that's when they uh, enabled the court husher. And I'd never heard of this. <laughs> and I was like, what the frick is a court husher? Is it what it sounds like? Because it sounds like somebody presses a button to make a bunch of noise so you can't hear what the judge said. That, that is exactly what it is. It's a button that you press in the courtroom that fills the room with some white noise so that you can't overhear what the judge is discussing during the bench conference. So I thought that was pretty fun. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. You you can't hear, in this case, McFadden yelling at the special <laughs> counsel team, which I'm sure was going on. Uh, yeah, which I'm sure went real well. And I'm sure Chief Judge Boesberg, who actually oversees grand jury proceedings, will be happy to know that McFadden waived some grand jury secrecy rules uh, just across the hall. But Regardless, he was satisfied with whatever happened uh, and then sent Woodward and the other prosecutor back to the grand jury room on their merry way. They were there until uh, just short of 5 p.m. Um, questioning, I guess, their their witness, Will Russell. There was another witness that was brought in that day, but we don't we don't know who that is um, or what case uh, or if it was with that same grand jury. Uh, I, we assume that it was. That's what the reporting sort of indicates. But. There was another uh, witness that was there that day, finished up at five, uh, went home. So I, you know, these appearances that we've seen, oh, Wyndham's at the courthouse. They're going to vote on a true bill. They're, oh, something's going on. No notable witnesses. They could have been fighting a witness battle. And we also, nobody saw Will Russell or the other witness go in. So they must have entered through the basement. So it's quite possible that even though no notable witnesses were seen, uh, the times that we saw Wyndham at the courthouse doesn't mean that there weren't notable witnesses in the grand jury room. Yeah, I mean, at this point, anyone who's going in is someone who you're going to be familiar with when you find out, uh, when you hear their name. Uh, we've said this many times. This is the, this is very clearly the end. You get the target letter out. This was Trump's- <laughs> Target letter went out. Yeah, yeah, Trump's opportunity to come in and testify, uh, you know, was the end of this week. So we're at the end. They are- perfecting testimony. They're bringing people in to lock down certain statements, either positive or negative. They are cleaning up some some pieces of factual evidence that they think they might need to rebut different defenses, you know, to bolster different parts of the case. This is this is kind of the, you know, the the out the trimmings on the house, right? You laid the foundation a long time ago. You built that thing. It's beautiful, two-story, whatever. Uh, the roof is on, it holds water, it's got electric, all the important stuff is there. Now you're just kind of doing the finishing, making it look good. And, um, you know, it's just a matter of how long that's going to take. We'll see. Yeah. And like you said, uh, it was three weeks from target letter to indictment in the documents case. It was, that's when the target letter was dated when we finally all 
uh, were able to see a copy of that or when media was able to see a copy of that and tell us when it was sent. Um, and yeah, for Trump to sit on that for, for that long uh, and not say anything um, was interesting, mm-hmm. I thought. Um, this time he came out earlier. He came out soon, like he didn't wait a, like a week or two after he got the target letter before he put it out on True Social. He went two days in, and I think that he learned from the last time that if he has more time to fundraise and spin totally between totally. indictment and you know to get everybody riled up about the indictment, maybe he'll get less than fourteen people showing up to support him, uh, you know, at Mar-a-Lago or at the courthouse uh, in D.C., which I'm sure they will be wholly prepared for. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think so- you're you're absolutely right. This is entirely a political calculation on his part, which is the calculations he's more comfortable with. He mm-hmm. clearly, he and his team feel like this is a good news story for him right now in the short term, getting indicted, which is amazing. I can't believe I'm hearing, my, hearing myself say that. Um, but it is, his m- numbers are up, his fundraising is, is off the charts, so. Yeah, and DeSantis was announcing something that day, and I think he was just trying to undercut that, um, so. Yeah, we'll so s- we'll, we'll see. see. We'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. Yep, but it could be, they could go this week, they could go two weeks from now, three weeks from now. Um, we just, we, you know, we'll keep an eye on the news, and as we see more witnesses go in, we know it's kind of, they're still working on, on tying up the loose ends for a minute. Uh, maybe uh, finally wading through the final last holdouts on privilege. And and we do have some reporting from CNN that there are people who are going to come and talk next month uh, to, to special counsel. So we'll, we'll see how that could impact uh, when uh, an indictment is, is handed down when it's voted on. Uh, all right, we're going to take another quick break. And then um, we have some news about some other testimony uh, going down. And uh, like I said, that um, very, uh, Great reporting by your colleagues over at CNN yep. on on some of the things that are that are, are winding down and happening in in the January sixth investigation. We'll talk about that. We're just going to take a quick break first. Everybody, stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes and they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to 
be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Welcome back. All right, so NBC News has confirmed that former Arizona governor... I like, I like the sound of that, by the way, because I'm really digging Katie Hobbs right now. Former Arizona governor Doug Ducey is cooperating, is said to be cooperating with special counsel. Um, wh- what are your thoughts on, on that? Because it seems like in some cases, the Department of Justice wanted to leave the state and state officials and state elector stuff up to the states. But then in other cases, we've got, and we're going to talk about something in in Georgia as well, we've got where, you know, we've got uh, Jack Smith's investigatory tentacles all up in the program. So what do you think about the the Doug Ducey potential cooperation and how that fits in with with perhaps the target letter that we saw? Yeah, so I think over the last few weeks, I've been feeling like the the infamous pressure campaign on the states. So that's the call to Raffensperger, these calls to Doug Ducey, one of which he notoriously refused to take. As he was signing the As certificate was, for Biden. Yeah. Yeah, good, good call there. I, I've, I've been thinking more and more that that stuff, the special counsel team might leave on the table or leave for the states to follow up with. With, of course, we know that Georgia is, maybe Michigan as well now. Now, the fraudulent electors, the actual impaneling of fraudulent electors, their execution of paperwork and submitting it to the federal government, I thought, I thought that's something that they'll take because it's very tangible, very clearly fits into the federal fraud statutes. But I have to say that now, seeing this, the statute cited in the target letter, I think it, it, uh, the contact with, of course, the interview of Raffensperger and now this contact with Doug Ducey, it does fit in a way, if you think about those, the testimony those two might be able to offer that could support this theory that the former president engaged in an effort to deprive citizens of their constitutional rights to vote, right? So Ducey can get up there, likely give testimony about contacts that he had from Mike Pence and possibly direct from Trump, certainly Trump's attempts to contact him, what he knew they wanted him to do with respect to certifying or not certifying the election. So I do think that um, there could be some very relevant testimony, could be, again, we don't know what the results of these interviews or appearances have been so far, but it's certainly a, a valid direction for the special counsel team to be looking right now. It's a little surprising that they left it to this late in the game, maybe the selection of that uh, two forty one statute was a was kind of a late addition to the target letter. Maybe that's something they've just started thinking about differently in the last few months. I don't know. That's speculation. But uh, well, it seems to me that you know early on when they started looking at the fraudulent elector scheme, which started in November of twenty twenty one, by the way, not April or May of twenty twenty two. 
uh, with uh, Wyndham uh, at you know at the top of that. He's the guy who went out and used the inspector general and the postal yep. inspector to get um, Eastman, Perry, Clark, you know, uh, search warrants for phones mm-hmm. and emails and things like that. Uh, and, you know, he started that uh, fairly early on. And then I think what happened was the, the states started their investigations, too. We know Michigan uh, did. Arizona did not because at the time they did, you know, they didn't have uh, they hadn't had their new they didn't right. have their new attorney right. general yet at the time. Um, Georgia, everybody started looking. And then it, it got to a point where. After the January 6th Select Committee was done and the, the government had all of its transcripts and could really begin its work of, of uh, understanding what witnesses are, are good and which are compromised and stuff like that, that that's when they maybe uh, were in communication with some of these states and saying, you know, hey, Dana Nessel, we're, we, we got the Trump stuff. We got the Trump Eastman, Cheesebro, Meadows, uh, Rudy stuff. You deal with your own uh, electors on the crimes. And and so maybe that then, and we know Fonnie Willis's electors weren't given their immunity deals by their lawyer, and that sort of postponed everything for, my goodness, almost nine months, right? So it, uh, there was probably a lot of that happening, and maybe that's why finally that, you know, that there's going to be a situation where in order to decline to prosecute something, you have to have all your reasons and your ducks in a row. So it seems like if they're not going to go after the Raffensperger and the Ducey uh, stuff on the federal level, but they're, they've got it so that they know that it was more appropriate. And they could put it in the report that it was more appropriate for the States to, to do, to do those investigations or something, something to that effect. I could see that probably being a reason for doing this so late stage like that. They weren't really going to go after the fraudulent electors didn't really need Doug Ducey or Raffensperger, but in order to get it in the report for a declination decision, you would have to definitely wrap up every loose end and every thread that you were investigating in the first place. And I think that that might be part of it. I'm just guessing though. I'm really just spitballing on that. Um, but I think it's, I find it very interesting um, that Doug Ducey, who, who uh, took the phone, looked at his phone, hailed to the chief, silenced the call, put it down and, <laughs> and then what signed about the Biden certified. <laughs> that was too perfect. I mean, that was like a Hollywood moment. You couldn't you couldn't recreate that in a in a believable way. Mm-mm. Yeah, I I think um, I I just think whether they're taking the fraudulent electors thing as a federal crime or not, put that aside. Guys like Raffensperger and Ducey have some potentially important testimony uh, to add to this overarching idea of defrauding the government. Or or depriving depriving people of, people their, of rights. their rights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, another uh, bit of news in a grand jury subpoena dated May thirty first, Georgia's Secretary of State's office was directed to hand over any and all security video or security footage, or any other video of any kind depicting or taken at or near the State Farm Arena, and any associated data. This is the this is Jack Smith, special counsel subpoenaing video evidence from State Farm Arena. This is the video that Rudy Giuliani is being sued over for defamation by Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. This is the lie, the big lie that that Donald Trump fundraised off of consistently, sending the video out in fundraising emails, saying, look at the suitcase under the table, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Look, she's panning off... uh, a thumb drive, which was actually a ginger mint, we found out later. So I, it, it is, comes 
to no surprise to me that Jack Smith would want this video footage uh, perhaps to look at defrauding funders and the wire fraud case, uh, but certainly also election interference. Yeah, I think there's a lot of potentially interesting investigative uh, avenues here. Um, you know, this is presumably security video footage taken that's, you know, normal capture that's from cameras that are installed and run by the arena, which does raise a, a strange, you know, the interesting question of like why they are going to the state uh, Secretary of State's office to get this footage. If they're really interested in the footage, why didn't they just go to the arena and say, we want your footage? Maybe they didn't, uh, maybe they didn't uh, record it, keep it, you know, maybe they recorded over it or it's no longer available, something like that. But there's a bunch of things they could be looking for here. So that security footage could reveal um, the actions of other people who were engaged in trying to watch or tape or film what the election workers were doing, right? So it could be a way of identifying additional people who are currently unknown to you, but who are actually on the ground uh, carrying out the orders of a Rudy Giuliani or mm. whoever else. And that's a good point. You know, that if, if your theory is uh, pointing to, the uh, what happened in the arena as evidence of fraud, you know, knowing that it wasn't, you were com you were defrauding the government or what have you. You would want everybody in that chain, not just you know Rudy who was yelling and screaming about it on television, but you want the guy, the operatives or the people who went there to capture that video to to hand it up the chain as quote unquote evidence of fraud. Yeah, no, it makes it makes total sense. Again, I, I think as we hear more about these subpoenas, um, it just sort of speaks to the the breadth and depth of the investigation, the sprawling nature and the, the, the enormity of the investigation into yeah. the disruption of peaceful transfer of power. All right. What uh, what did your colleagues over at CNN find out? Um, this this is new reporting um, that came at the end of the week. Yeah, this is pretty amazing. So you have this really impressive team of Paula Reed. Caitlin Polantz, Kara Scannell, Hannah Rabinowitz, uh, and Jeremy Erb that have stumbled across this information that prosecutors have been in talks with at least two witnesses to schedule interviews with investigators that won't be completed for at least another month. They also were able to uncover the fact that former New York City Police Commissioner Bernie Carrick, who is a, a very uh, public Trump ally and somebody who is working very closely with Giuliani during that period of, you know, let's find the evidence of fraud. Carrick was like, you know, the former law enforcement, you know, super cop who was actually going to go out there and find the evidence of fraud and deliver it to Giuliani and the other attorneys. Well, apparently Carrick is still in the process of scheduling his upcoming interview and a former Trump lawyer plans to talk to investigators next month as well. So it's just a really solid indication that no matter what happens with the indictment, which, as I said, I expect to see that pretty soon, next couple of weeks. Uh, can't be much more specific than that at this point. The work, the investigative work is going to continue here. So I don't think we should be surprised to see additional people going in the grand jury, even after the indictment, or other folks publicly acknowledging the fact that they're going in to talk to investigators, which is always, you know, well, typically the first step before you end up in front of the grand jury, you got to go in and get interviewed first so the prosecutors know what you have to say.
Yeah, I think that that's always... And I mean, this is when we were, you know, watching the Mueller investigation, those first indictments uh, first started coming out in November of 2017. And, and the investigation continued and, and uh, you know, didn't end until uh, the spring of uh, 2019. So we don't know how long we're in for. <laughs> we <don't>, just, <laughs> we'll be introing... Jack 57, indictment watch <laughs> continues. Dude, they just served a search warrant in the Tupac case, 27 no, years old. That's so, crazy. That is so, nuts. yeah, um, it, things, things can take a while. I don't hey, think I mean, we're they just solved the Gilgo Beach but, murders, we think. Yeah, the, and yeah, although I don't think that the Trump insurrection case is going to go cold for <laughs> any of the time. <laughs> Let's hope not. There's so Let's much information. Not. We're all tripping over it that's everywhere right. in the country. Um, also, let's see from CNN, they say, for instance, uh, the grand jury hearing evidence in Smith's investigation met for more than six hours Thursday. Mm-hmm. This is what we were talking about with the Wyndham and the uh, Will uh, Russell, Judge McFadden, uh, S- Stanley Woodward, Judge McFadden drama uh, before concluding shortly before 5 p.m. CNN spotted members of the grand jury leaving the courthouse Thursday afternoon and prosecutors with Smith's office uh, returned to their office in the separate building. They go on to say in a sign that Smith's team could bring additional charges in the classified documents case, a Trump organization employee who works at Mar-a-Lago recently received a target letter. And we remember that. We talked about that last week. Um, That is probably employee number two. Uh, Also represented by Stanley Woodward. (laughs) (laughs) The law offices of Stanley Woodward. He's doing more work than... 50 attorneys combined at this point. Yeah, yep, yep. And he's getting paid handsomely by the Trump Save America PAC. Yes, he is. Uh, so we have some more news on the documents case too. We're going to pivot over to the documents case and some uh, rulings that have come down from Judge Aileen Cannon, but we need to take one last quick break. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes and they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. 
This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, welcome back. The ruling we've all been waiting for has come down. Uh, Judge Aileen Cannon has set the trial date for the documents case, uh, the Mar-a-Lago documents case, for May of uh, 2024. And that is right in line with uh, what our uh, friend and guest Brian Greer had assumed would we would eventually end up with a June trial date. But I think the problem here is that we wanted a December trial date with the regular order of delays to kick it out until mm-hmm. May or June. Now we're all the way out in May and any additional appeals for canon rulings a week before then could push this out uh, beyond the election again. Yes. So I'm yes. I'm glad she scheduled it for before the election, but that doesn't mean she's not done delaying this thing. That's right. And um you know, I, I, it's really kind of an interesting decision on her part. I mean, I think on the surface, it looks kind of Solomonic, right? Split the baby. Uh, Jack Smith wanted this December, which by really all observers are like, that's pretty aggressive uh, ask, but okay, good, good for him. And then, of course, the Trump team came back and said, we want it never uh, or otherwise known as sometime after the election. Uh, so, giving them a date which wasn't as quick as Jack wanted, but it's a date certain and it's before the election. It looked like kind of a uh, a clear split. But there's some... Well, it's also kind of, and I don't want to interrupt you, it's also kind of the next available date. His dance card for court is filling up pretty fast. January, February, we've got Eugene Carroll. March, April, we've got Manhattan District Attorney. Judge Cannon actually asked if Manhattan could change their trial date because she had her eyes on March for this one. So, you know, giving a little extra time for each of those trials. May is the next available time if you're not going to put it in December. I think that's right. There's also reporting that she was uh, very engaged in figuring out what the process would be with now the necessary hearings that we'll see through SEPA and uh, motion practice and all that kind of stuff. So she made some effort to really kind of base this on at least solid predictions of what the timing might look like, maybe, maybe, um, uh, optimistic predictions of what the timing could look like. Um, also with an awareness, as you just said, of the other trials that, uh, that Trump is facing. I take all those as good signs, right? She didn't just completely fold to this doom and gloom argument that the Trump attorneys made of, oh, he's so busy. He's not like anybody else. It's not fair. La, 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 la. She kind of summarily dismissed all that and went with something that that is at least a decision that's at least based on some sort of reasonable um, logic and fact. And uh, I don't know, maybe I have a very low bar here, but I'm taking that as a good sign. And, and consequently, you know, coming out of the arguments it, uh, on Tuesday, it looked like she was really very negative about the special prosecutor's asks. And I was afraid that she was going to go full on in the tank uh, with the Trump side on this one. That has not happened. And I would assume that Trump's lawyers are a little bit stung uh, by this one. I think they probably expected, um, you know, a a 
an order that was more in line with what they wanted. Yeah, that's a, it's a clear loss for for Team Trump, which makes me think it's a win for for the special counsel. Um, but yeah, all right. So we're looking at now. We've got uh, January, we've got March, we've got May. Uh, we'll see what we can, when we can line up a a January sixth trial, and then we'll see where the Fulton County trial uh, comes into play, and then who knows what else we'll have. <laughs> There's that. a full dance card for that old man. I'm telling you. Yep. Yep, every day is this is going to be the worst day of his life <laughs> for the rest of his life. All right, so do we have some listener questions, everybody? We love our listener questions. If you have a question, you can send it to us at hello at MullerSheWrote.com. Just put Jack. Make sure you put Jack in the subject line. Otherwise, it'll get lost in the shuffle. Uh, what do we have this week? So this week, AG, we have a question from Christy, who hails from North Carolina, and Christy starts with a very cheery hello and an exclamation point. I love that. Um, and then she asks, why might folks appear multiple times before a federal grand jury? And this is like an incredibly timely question in light of our conversation about uh, Sir William Russell, uh, who was testifying on <laughs> Thursday for the severalth time, I don't know, second or third time. So Christy, there's a lot of reasons why this might happen. Um, the first one that we've seen a lot is you might have a witness come in and they might claim, they might refuse to answer questions under some sort of claim of privilege. And then you would have to maybe litigate that claim of privilege. And then once it was, if it was litigated, not in the defendant or the witness's favor, then you would bring, you know, they lose their argument. In other words, you would then have to bring them back to actually get them to answer questions on the record. There's other pretty um, mundane reasons too. You might have a witness in early on in your investigation. And then over the course of your investigation, you learn more facts, right? About um, things that other people did that you think that first witness could shed light on. Or maybe you learn things about what that witness actually did that they didn't tell you in their interview or their prior appearance. And so you might call them back in to confront them with things that they've been hiding from you or maybe lying about. So you could bring people in because you've learned new information and now you have a reason to ask that person uh, additional questions. And right, then, like the Walt Nada is a great example right. of that. There, mm -hmm. there you go. And sometimes even if you have a witness who's like uh, cooperating fully and truthfully and uh, not is not a problem for you, so that's rare because they all <laughs> cooperators usually cause some sort of problems, you might have them come in at one period when the grand jury is getting information about one series of crimes or one, you know, one, one event. And then you would bring them back later to talk about a totally different event or a different series of crimes, things like that. So you see that a lot in organized crime cases where you might have one cooperator who's like your star witness and they know everything. They were there for all the homicides or all the extortions or whatever. They might have to come in multiple times to talk about different stuff. So there's a lot of reasons mm -hmm. why people might have to come in more than once. Yeah. Awesome question. Um, thank you for that. Again, if you have a question for us, you can send it in to us by emailing us. Hello at MullerSheWrote.com. Just put Jack in the subject line. Uh, all right. Well, as we say every week, what could possibly happen this week? <laughs> we'll Lord find out. Knows. The Lord only knows. We might be talking indictments next week. Uh, or More maybe testimony. More know. target letters. Who knows? But whatever it is, you will hear it on Jack, the podcast about all things special counsel. Andy, it's been a great show. Thank you so much for spending time with me. I'm Allison Gill. And I am thankful to be here. And I am Andy McCabe. We'll see everybody next week on Jack. 
Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.